we need to get the Joel Olstein motivational <laughs> device. I think it's only like thirty nine ninety nine. You press buttons and it has Wait, like what? <laughs> <laughs> there is a device you can get. It's for your Christmas needs. It's it's not a sponsor here. <laughs> He's gonna put that in there somewhere. Wait, yeah. what? <laughs> this but is cold open. <laughs> Joel Olstein has this device where you thirty nine ninety nine. I'm not I'm not a salesman for this, but <laughs> Wait, I can't, it's like that's like what like. 20, like 10,000 motivational sayings or whatever. I can't remember. That's a good value. That's a good value. Of you press a button and it gives you a motivational saying, I guess, like, let go of yesterday and let today be a new beginning and be the best that you can be. If one dream dies, dream another dream. If you get knocked down, get back up and go again. Is you know what that reminded me of? Anything biblical in. <laughs> Shark Boy and Lava Girl. What? Dream another dream? Or something like that. Like, dream. You know, uh, dude, that? That, I, mean, I know, you know how long it's been since I've seen Shark Boy? Oh, I know. What's nuts is like you look on the, the podcast rankings and Joel Stein's podcast is like in the top of spirituality. But you know, you know who's a uh, riding right on the coattails. Joel Stein's gonna catch up. He's gonna get gonna get beyond. He's gonna top them religion charts. Us cross training, where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. I'm Matthew Thompson. I'm Tanner Higgins. I don't know what these faces are about, but I'm Mason Simmons. <laughs> We're coming for you, Joel. We're coming for you. Suplex you right through these two tables that we study on. We don't have a motivational cube, though. D- we are the motivational cube. We've I mean, got- what about that wasn't motivational? I could run through a wall right now. I mean, we do have Not Mason. Not Carpet Jesus. We've we got Carpet Jesus and Mason Simmons uh, with us. So, I mean, we don't need a motivational cube. That's thirty nine ninety nine. So, we're jumping over walls. We're jumping over walls. We're jumping over walls. We're jumping oh. over walls. <laughs> Is there an echo? That's right. That's right. But you see, uh, we just we just learned about a cube that uh, spouts stuff that has nothing to do with scripture. But we're gonna we're gonna spout nothing but scripture, nothing but scripture here at Cross Training. So this week we're talking about John chapter nineteen. But we're only gonna uh, we're only gonna aim to do the first half of it, kind of like the verses one through I think twenty seven is kind of where we decide the cutoff here yes. is gonna be. Because this, if you thought it was dense stuff before. Oh my word! We just, we didn't want to put like a two and a half hour episode on you, folks. We we want to be a little more reasonable with with our time here because I mean this is this is the action. This is Jesus on the cross. This is it being finished. Spoiler alert! This, this is stuff you really really got to take your time with here. Because this is the gospel. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, like I want to read this as though it's my first time reading it. Like we leave no syllable unspoken. Yeah. Because. I mean, we've all heard plenty of lessons, plenty of sermons um, about the scripture. So this is our chance to like really dig into it for ourselves and mm-hmm. figure out how is it going to speak to me individually, like as I meditate on it, and how is it going to speak to us as we three discuss it here. So this this is something we can't possibly take seriously enough. So this is this is half number one of John chapter nineteen. Let's get into it, John chapter nineteen. I'm going to read verses one through six to start off with. So then Pilate took Jesus. And had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up, uh, went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Gather there. Look, I'm bringing him out to you. Let him know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. Behold the man. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify him. Crucify him. My first take when I read through that is just the mention of the purple robe. Um, 
I mean, obviously that that signification of of royalty done in a in a mocking fashion, of course. <clears throat> but when I read like any indicator of like a, a purple garment or a purple anything like having to do with royalty, I just think back to like Mace Window. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, I think back to like high school English going over like the, the symbology of different colors uh, and such. And purple is always like a, a royalty one. Yeah. So it, it's lovely to know that some themes never change. Yeah. Well, it's just ironic that the royalty is placed upon Jesus, even if it's in a mocking, jeering manner. Because you see the robe of purple is a, you know, purple is like a, a sign of royalty. And they put it on him to mock him, but yet in reality, guess what? He is royalty. Yeah, <laughs> he is king. On that topic, I think there's a there's definitely a lot to unpack here. With that purple robe being used um, in a mocking fashion, uh, there's a lot of mockery taking place here. I mean, Jesus is about to endure quite a bit of it, uh, and just general disrespect. So, where do we think Pilate's head is at at the moment? Because last chapter he seemed to borderline be on Jesus's side because. He, at the very least, he's getting intrigued. He's not really getting angry with him necessarily. It's more of like a curiosity. And like he has this clear knowledge that he's done nothing wrong. I mean, he sees mm -hmm. an innocent man before him, and yet you have chapter 19 opening up with Jesus being flogged by Pilate. What, why is he doing that and then immediately going and saying, I find no guilt in this man? Yeah. Where, where do you think that's coming from? I'll give from? my point, and then I, Mason may have something completely different. So, I mean, in verse 1, it does make mention that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, had him scourged. And that's basically uh, like where we get the the cat of nine tails, where it's strips strips of leather that have like metal and bone and glass tied to it. And basically, it's filleting the back and the skin of the individual. And if anyone's seen The Passion of Christ, I'm sure there's images that you can have within that. So uh, there's really three reasons why people are scourged or flogged, and it's either to punish prisoners, just to punish them, to gain confessions, false confessions or true confessions, or to make death come quicker for that individual. But my thoughts are here is that Pilate's reasoning to flog Jesus maybe have a little bit different motive, is that... When Pilate scourged Jesus, it may be to appease the Jews. Like he he sees no fault in this man, as we see here in this chapter, and even in the previous chapters, like you has he has really done anything wrong. So he's not really trying to get a confession. There's really no punishment to being give and to make death come quicker. I mean, he doesn't want to put him to death. So my thing, my thought is maybe Pilate, and I'm not trying to give Pilate any kind of grace here because he's definitely a turd. And we've we've said that last chapter, he's not a man to be looked up to. Uh, but I think Pilate might be trying to appease the Jews like, I don't want to execute this guy. Maybe if I just beat him up, it'll make them happy and I won't have to kill him. What, what's y'all's thoughts? I would say that's definitely one of them. But I could also see trying to get a confession out of him. Yeah, that's kind of okay. what I was Like a Salem witch trials type deal thing or Basically, something like that? Basically, like, I mean, if, they, if he could punish Jesus enough, and maybe he could get him to confess to something that way. He could be like, oh, yeah, and he's done something wrong. We can do it, and it can get over with, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. Yeah, and a historian might be able to prove me wrong here, but, like, I feel as though this was an unorthodox situation that Pilate was in. I feel like it probably wasn't every day that religious leaders are shoving some random dude with, like, a spotless record mm -hmm. and saying, kill this dude. This is probably out of the ordinary uh, for Pilate. So he's probably sitting here thinking, well, surely he's done something. He's just not fessing up. So, yeah, I'm— I do kind of lean toward uh, Mason's logic there, but I do also agree with you, Tanner. I think there was also—because, um, again, even if this was a, a strange situation, it's still just another day to pilot. He's He's got better stuff to do as far as he's concerned. So I'm sure it was also like a, maybe this will make yeah. them complacent. 
So let's let's talk about a little bit of the, the punishment that's going on. Now, like we, we've looked at the uh, physical aspect, but let's look at more of like the bigger context of the spiritual punishment. So we start with his humiliation of stripping him basically naked, and it was common for when crucifixions were happening to strip them naked, placed a, a mockery robe, a crown of thorns, and I think even Matthew makes added that they stripped him down and gave him a reed as mocking like a scepter. Uh, of royalty. So it's basically all mocking his claim to royalty of being king of the Jews. So, but let's look at this uh, uh, this punishment. And this is where the punishment of sins are applied uh, upon Jesus. So there is a uh, portion of theology that's called atonement theory. And it's basically saying where in the world, how are our sins forgiven? Where does it come from? And so one of the first aspects I want to look at, because there's many things, is the penal substitutionary atonement. And penal substitutionary atonement, or PSA, within Christian theology, argues that Christ's own sacrificial choice was punishment in the place of sinners, thus satisfying the demands of justice so God can justly forgive us. So this PSA aspect, this penal substitutionary atonement, this punishment that Jesus took upon himself by choice erases the sin debt of us. So there are many aspects of atonement theology that are interwoven within Jesus' death upon the cross. You've got ransom theory, you've got PSA, you've got Christus Victor. So, but the thing I want to look at here is that the the humiliation aspect of the penal substitutionary atonement part of this theology is that because Jesus freely chose this punishment, like I don't even, he wasn't even dragged, and you see like the calm demeanor that he has. He doesn't backlash at them. He doesn't yell at them. He says, get off me. Like if I was wrongly accused of something, or let's say, let's, okay, Mason, were you ever spanked as a child and did something, were spanked as a child that your brother did? That my brother did? Let's say your brother did something and you got in trouble for it. Probably a couple times. No, I wouldn't say too many. But well, let's, did, you, did you ever try to uh, not fight your parents, but more of like I didn't do nothing wrong, get off me type deal thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Jesus is completely innocent here, but yet he doesn't respond in that way. He, re- he freely chooses that. So I think this in this also aspect of him taking this punishment, this punishment of vulnerability and humiliation aspect of Jesus' death is equated with us and our sins. And this is where, I guess, the, the aspect of, of a preaching parallel here is that our sins as well be equated with Jesus' having sin placed upon him as the penal substitutionary atonement. Because what does our sins do? That it punishes us and tortures us and those around us. Our sins also humiliate us, and it makes us vulnerable. So yet we can also, when we sin against God, we can kind of place that symbolism and that reality in the shoes of Jesus as well, because that's what we do to God, is that we humiliate him, that we are now vulnerable when we sin, and it punishes us and tortures us and those around us as well, as it did for Christ and his and the sin of the world being placed upon him, even if he was innocent. Yeah, I mean, that is a big way that you can look at uh, Christ's suffering. Is I mean, it is a physical representation of not only uh, our sin being put on him, but like that's what sin does to us spiritually. Mm-hmm. Like that, it does do damage. It is something that we need to seek to to abstain from because it it does damage. When Pilate made the comment, behold the man, do you think there's any kind of significance? Because we see that kind of statement about Christ, like the man, and that he is the God-man. And like 
basically man do you think well do you think there's any kind of significance of that statement or do you think it was just like here's this guy which verse is that um verse five it says Pilate said to them behold the man here's the man okay yeah i skimmed over that is there significance of him saying the man because I mean, why didn't you not say this is Jesus? I mean, I know there's not. I'm I'm probably looking for berries where there's no berries. Pro- I would say it's just probably because they know who he is. They're like, "Here's your man." Yeah, here's I mean, it goes back to it not being really a, a day of significance for Pilate. It's mm-hmm. just like, "Behold, the man!" Like he can't keep track of all these names. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's just. Not but I think it's funny as a too. reader, though. As a reader, we see that he is named, you know, the man. Or a man, and it's like he's the epitome of perfection. Of man, you know what I mean? I mean, if you want to read that into it, I don't think anybody's going to tell you not yeah. to. But like, that, I don't, know. I don't. I personally, I don't see it. Uh, but one thing I would like to to discuss, uh, since we're on the subject of things that Pilate's doing, one thing that I thought of uh, when I was reading this originally was like Pilate's a significant figure, like in history. Like he's he's an important guy. And this is really one of the, as far as I know, it's like the only situation that like Jesus interacts with someone that is like a big figure. But Pilate isn't super relevant to Jesus' story. How are we supposed to look at Pilate as, as part of the story? Like, is he just a name amongst words? Is it important that Pilate is getting involved in this? He's important because he didn't, he, he saw no reason for him to die. And because of that, the bl- who gets put like fully in blame? The Jews, the people he was sent to be of, and you know people like he came like for the Jews. Well, if Pilate was to be like, oh yeah, let's kill him. Well, it wouldn't just be the Jews against him. It would just be like you know every common man was against him. But I mean, the people that found true fault with him were the Jewish, the Jewish higher officials. I didn't think about that. Like, so the value that Pilate brings, or the purpose that Pilate brings to the story is the fact that he he finds no fault in Jesus. From what I believe, yes. Huh. Yeah, I can see that. Shoot. Look, mm, over here learning stuff. Like, but, and I think what you said, that the Pilate's irrelevance, though. I mean, he's relevant, but irrelevant. Yeah, because, I mean, that the reason that that question sounded so terribly worded was because the way I look at it is I try to relate this to Jesus's upside down kingdom Mm -hmm. uh, sermons because I feel like it relates to that but my theological brain is not big enough yet to make that connection so I'm kind of like just spewing well it's funny because Pilate he's basically like just a a dude that's just in a position he has control and has power because of marriage that there's no reason why that he has power like he like his authority is very weak over that region, and so it's like because okay, so that's that's why like when we see in like in verse in verse twelve we begin uh, let's we'll go back here in a second but in verse twelve it says from then on Pilate tried to set Jesus free because he saw no fault in this guy uh, but and we'll look at that here in a second because there's some good stuff in there but if you let this man go this is what the the, the Jewish people start saying you are no friend of Caesar anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So Jewish Jerusalem and Jewish culture was controlled by the Roman Empire, correct? So when rebels and rebellions started coming out, like we've got, you know, got Simon the Zealot, you know, he was a guy that was a, a was fighting the Romans trying to get uh, 
rid of Roman oppression. Barabbas, he was a rebel. You know, he was set free and he was uh, uh, accused about to be put to death because he was a rebel. You got the Maccabees, which is, I think that was a uh, hundred years before, or uh, I think it ended 30 years, 30 BC, something like that, somewhere right there. And it was well known that there's like a tension between Roman control and Jerusalem culture. So Pilate is aware of the insurrections that could happen if he lets the Jew, if he lets Jesus go because the Jewish religious culture are like, we want him dead. And the people, the Jewish religious culture and the Jewish leaders are like, you know, you're no friend of Caesar, basically puffing his ego because, like I said before, that Pilate has basically really, and he's an insignificant character. He's not really a friend of Caesar. He's not. He's not like someone, hey, Caesar, what's up, bro? I mean, call on a daily basis. He probably barely knew the guy. Like I said, he was there because of marriage. So I guess this, the the Jewish religious leaders are like, you know, if you're truly a friend of Caesar, which he wasn't, trying to buff his ego a little bit, then you would not let this man go and let him die. And so I guess that statement kind of snowballed the aspect of his mind of thinking, okay, am I going to let this man go because he's completely innocent, or do I want to retain my power and to appease everybody and be basically a nationalist and love my Caesar over the truth? But he wasn't a friend at all. Let's not get too too far ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Let's, let's rewind a little bit. I'll uh, read some scripture and we can uh, continue discussion. Um, starting in the first or second half of verse 6, I'll read to verse 11. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I found no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So I have, I have two questions. My first question is like in verse 10 uh, where Pilate's complaining. He says, you will not speak to me, referring to Jesus not responding when he asks, where are you from? Like, why, why not answer that? And question number two who has the greater sin? Again, listening to sermons, uh, hearing Bible lessons and such over, over the story. I've never really addressed those questions mentally. So why would Jesus not, I don't know, witness? What's the, what's the word? What, what's the word to use? Why, why not confirm when he's confirmed so many times before? I think he's already given the answer. Because uh, we looked in the previous chapter, in verse uh, chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And he kind of already answers it, but yet I think when the Jews were like, he claims to be the son of God, it kind of, oh crap. I mean, this is a completely, this changes my, my thought process of how I need to kind of go about accusing him or punishing him whatsoever. Because even though uh, Pilate was not a religious dude, I mean, he's not shy to gods and goddesses and offsprings coming in like a human disguise. I mean, that was part of, you know, the Greek Roman culture of Zeus and Hercules. and well, Romans had their own version, too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, like, 
Greek mythology and Pluto. stuff like that. Yeah, Pluto. Pluto. Whatever. But yet he knows of this type of like man of God coming down in human form. So him ha- having that statement being brought towards him, oh, could this be a God? And this is where he asks the question, where are you from? Like, tell me. And it, it, that attitude changes. You notice it's kind of like a passive, like, okay, this guy's just a quote-unquote revolutionary trying to change the world, whatever. Now it's like, he actually cares a little bit. He's, he's almost scared, it seems like. It says... it says. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does say he's afraid. Yeah, it says that he was afraid. So the demeanor changes. <laughs> I have two thought processes. My f- main one and one that I'm kind of leaning towards the most is that Jesus is kind of afraid that... Well, not afraid. I mean, he knows what's going to happen either way. But it thinks that Pilate might set him free if he tells him the truth. Just because I thought of that, about, I thought about that too. It's that possible. Right it's possible. Uh, that, you know, he seems a little bit more interested now. And, I mean... While Pilate might not be, you know, of the Jewish culture, people of this time were still acknowledged. And, you know, especially when you had people like the Jews that wanted to come up and try to control the government, even though it really didn't, you know. But anyway, different story. So Jesus thinks that Pilate might set him free, and all of this has been for nothing, and his time has come, but it won't be fulfilled, or two— he will crucify him just because of the Jewish culture, and he'll give in to the Jews' uh, pressure, and you know then it's not just on the Jews anymore. So let me read Isaiah chapter fifty-three, verse seven, and, and Isaiah chapter fifty-three is a fantastic chapter over uh, basically the oppressed servant. So this is what verse seven says: He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. So I think here, this could be another thing of Jesus fulfilling the prophecy, is that like basically he took the punishment willingly and did not go above and beyond trying to get himself free. So, I mean, that aspect of like, okay, if I actually say that I'm God incarnate to Pilate, which he's probably superstitious of this aspect, I could be set free if I tell the truth. So here, not only is he fulfilling the prophecy of a lamb being thro- come before his shears silently and willingly, but then he's also fulfilling, like, okay, I need to take this punishment. Was that, There was a two, two questions that you said. My other, my other question is when Jesus refers to the person that handed, the, handed him over. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, that person committed the greater sin. Who's he talking about? And what does greater sin mean? Thought, thought every sin kept you from God, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I'd, that's what I have grown up assuming. So here's my here's my thought. I think that John is keeping it kind of vague, which because he doesn't name who has the greater sin. Jesus doesn't say who has the greater sin. But I think there's three possibilities. I think it's one of the first thing that came to mind, Judas. I thought it was Judas. That's a possibility. Second one, it could be just the Sanhedrin court and the Pharisees and Sadducees that are placing that punishment upon Jesus, trying to get him killed, crucify, crucify him. Or it could be probably the least one is Caiaphas, the guy that we saw earlier that was just part of the the Jewish religious aspect court uh, part of it. So there's, there's some possibilities. The greater sin, I think this is one thing we need to make clear, is that our view of sin has different consequences as God's view of sin. But let me get that straight. Every sin keeps us away from God's grace. Correct. If I lie, I'm still a liar, no matter how big the greater, greater the lie is. But yet I can go about and lying about certain things and get away with it in human culture. But yet in God's kingdom, I can't get away with it. 
So, I mean, there's different grades of sin within a human context, but there is all sins are equal in the eyes of God. Either it be a lying, murder, or adultery, idolatry. It doesn't matter that sin is sin to God. But yet, I think here, the greater sin could be that traitorous aspect of the people that he came to witness to and to bring to his kingdom are now turn, turning against him. But yet Caesar here, Pilate here, is doing what he has basically author, been given authority to do. As we made, so we're talking about, you know, God has given him authority to do these things. So Caesar is just doing his job. So he doesn't really have the greater sin. Those that have turned against Christ, either Judas or Sanhedrin or Caiaphas, whoever it may be, has done the greater sin by turning against Christ. So there is a human element and there's a God element of a, a sin level. Does that make sense? Yep. So he's, when he's talking about greater sin, he's basically just speaking in uh, relational values. Like that it really is a case that someone did something worse than other, but he's not necessarily speaking on like a, theological level, I guess is one way you could put it. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. He's okay. not sitting here saying, like, this sin will get you in a deeper part of hell than another. Like, yeah. that's not the type no, of no, language no, no. that's being used here. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I want to answer the question about, like, where did it come from when uh, Jesus says, uh, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. A lot of people can be confused about, you know, did, it, did Pilate's power come from Caesar? I mean, as we've mentioned, you know... It, it, Pilate wants to say he's big buddy buddies with him. That's how he got the job and all. But uh, actually, if you transfer it over to the Greek, it is anothen, which means um, from the first, from the beginning, from the very first of things of which which come from heaven or God. So Jesus is trying to tell him, you know, if it wasn't from your position came from heaven, it came from God. You know, you didn't get this because of who you are. You know, you were. Mm-hmm. kind of put here and that brings up just what tanner said you know so the ones that delivered me to you are going to be the ones with a greater sin and that's going to be the jewish people yeah and you know on that note i want to fly directly in the face of something that tanner already said in this episode so far like not wanting to give a pilot very much credit because he's still a turd but Man, is is it just me or is Jesus like on the verge of like trash talking this dude to his face? And Pilate's just like taking it. You know what I mean? I can see that. Because there's nothing there to refute. Yeah, because I mean you got like like Mason brought up like Jesus confirming like you're only here because I allow you to be, basically. Like if you really want to boil that dude, down that... to its basis sense, like Yeah. True. And I mean we're gonna hear even more uh borderline sassy Jesus coming out to to Pilate who has just given him like the mother of all threats, be like, you realize I can free you, but I can also crucify you. Like, what? Like, it's just, it's an interesting uh, balance. I mean, it's like, again, Mason, I think you were the one that uh, said this, that Jesus, he doesn't want to get himself out of it. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that literally goes against the, the crux of the mission here, of, of, of the plan. So, I guess Jesus is just pressing the buttons that he knows he can hit. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it almost, almost it kind of intimidates Pilate a little bit. Because yeah, it, I mean, again, like it goes back to him being afraid. Like he, there is that sense of fear. I there. think he's giving him a little bit of knowledge without convincing him. Yeah, I mean, Pilate's not. He's stupid. just giving him a little bit of nuggets and It's not like Paul and uh, Agrippa, King Agrippa, saying he almost persuaded to me. I don't think it's that aspect because 
there's really no persuasion that he's giving here. I'm actually really glad you brought that up, brought that up because there was two different things. Agrippa was almost persuaded. If anybody's familiar with the story, it's in Acts 24 through 26. Uh, the chapter 24 through 26, you can go up and check on that. Great story. Um, Paul is actually addressed by Felix and said, much learning does you mad. Like, you're, you're crazy, Paul. You, you're a smart man. You've done all of this, you know, knowledge seeking. But it just drove you crazy. And then over here we have Agrippa kind of like, yeah, you, you you almost. You make sense. You, uh, you make sense, but I'm just not on board. You you make a lot of sense, and I I, I get it, but I'm just I, you just you almost got me, and it's that's that's the difference here that we see, I think, with Pilate. If Jesus has said too much, he can either be like Agrippa and kind of persuade him and set him free, and then all of a sudden the the whole purpose of Jesus coming is gone. Or, you know, mm -hmm. he's given to temptation and just set himself free. Or he can be like Felix and just be like, no, you're crazy. Let's go ahead and kill you. And then the blame no longer is just placed solely on the Jews. He, yeah, he gave a, enough truth to not convince him to let him go. Yeah, to convince him either way. Yeah. Which, I mean, this speaks just even more to Jesus' love for us that, I mean, because this, this is teaching me something I didn't know before, that Jesus had plenty of opportunities to get out of this. Mm -hmm. Like, that that makes me appreciate the, act, the action that much. Yeah, more. reading through this, I, I see I see a lot of times where it's like Jesus could have easily stepped out of this realm. And I, I wonder if that could have been another temptation that the devil placed upon him that's not recorded. Yeah. It's like... All these times you could have gotten out of it if you spoke up. All these times you could have gotten out of it if you just slipped out of the room. Yeah. And I know this is just a perfect metaphor, but, like, if there's any time um, any of y'all had to do, like, a, a public speaking thing while you were in school or something, because, like, when you're, when you're in school, like, doing public speaking is might as well put me in front of a firing squad. Like, I don't want to do that. But, like, when it, when the teacher calls on you, be like, all right, it's time for you to speak in front of the class. It's not like you can not do it. Like, it's time to go. Like I don't think he knows who he's talking to. Well, what? no. Let me give you. Let me give you an example. Well, that's why I specified school. Oh. No, 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 no. Okay. Let me. Let me tell you one time. No, I'm, I'm sitting with I'm two a, preachers. I'm talking about school, though. Let me tell you this. Uh, one of the times that I went to Haiti, Pastor Eve there. We first get there on the compound. I'm unpacking my bag, and he said, "You ready to preach?" Uh, what? Yeah. You need to be ready in and out of season. Church has already started. You got ten minutes. What? So, I mean, I, I had a chance of being like, well, I haven't prepared, but like as a servant of God, you can't be like, uh, no. I mean, as someone that is preaching, you need to be like, yeah, you're right, ready in and out of season. But Seth I, done that to me. I don't know if you remember that or not. Probably a few oh, months well, ago. crap. All right. So I'm sitting around a bunch of people. That well, no, 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 no. <laughs> I think uh, I had an hour or so. I mean, I, did, I had a little bit longer, but. <laughs> but uh, I think, uh, who is it? Is R.C. Ryle or J.C. Ryle? He says that, you know, a true man of God quivers every time he stands behind the pulpit. And I think that's that's the same thing as public speaking. I mean, I know of one guy, I, I don't know him personally, but I've heard of a story that has like a speech impediment if you talk to him normally, but when he stands behind the pulpit, he speaks clear as day. And so it's like God calls people to do things that are kind of out of their limits, but yet here Christ, to us, our mindset, eh, that doesn't apply. What were you actually saying? I'm sorry. Just about how nervous. Just nervous. So just say the nervousness. I could see how the nervousness of us can be related to Christ, and we can kind of parallel with that, the difficulties that are set before him that we could easily slip out if we wanted to or let this pa pa cup pass from us if we want to, but we got to be faithful as Christ was faithful. 
in that school situation, like, you don't get to say no. Like, when it's time, it's time. I mean, it's an F if you do. But, well, I mean, some you people will take that, I guess. Uh, but Jesus, he's he's given every opportunity. Even at, I mean, imagine if you're, like, one sentence into your speech, you stumble over your words, and then your teacher goes, eh, well, that was good enough if you want to, like, leave now. And you'd be like, oh, thank, thank God, <laughs> and walk back to your desk. Well, Jesus got the, the very intense equivalent of that with getting the lashings, and then he gets this opportunity to, to get out potentially, and he's like, no. I'm, I'm going to do what needs to be done. I'm going to I'm going to hold my tongue to to make sure that um, that I get this cup that's mm-hmm. coming to me. So yeah, that that brings me a whole new level of appreciation uh, for what Jesus is doing here. Mason, read uh, verses sixteen, uh, thirteen through sixteen, and tell me what your initial thoughts on are on that. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha, or Gabbatha. Now it was when the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him, Jesus, to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. All right. Stupid question. Super stupid question. Is Aramaic and Hebrew the same thing? Yes. Aramaic is Aramaic is 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 regional. Uh, Hebrew is more of local. Oh, so Aramaic's like a dialect. Yeah, kind of like how um, English and Southern. I mean, English is kind of the widespread Aramaic, and okay. Hebrew is more localized to the individual. So, Abba Father is still Aramaic slash Hebrew. Okay, because like when, whenever I refer to like the original text of scripture, like I say, the original Greek and Hebrew, and sometimes I'll tack on Aramaic in there. I'm like, is that even its own language? I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Good. I, I'm glad that that because that's been a just a curiosity in the back of my head that like I've gotten uh, theoretically so far into my Christian walk that I'm afraid yeah. to ask. But hey, yeah, found and out. I could and I could be a, a, I, could, I could have those confused, but yeah, it's it's basically the same thing. Okay. Good to know. So I'm assuming you're talking about verse 14 when he's talking about the preparation day of the Passover. Mm, I mean anything. I, I mean, not technically. No. no. Uh, the the Passover sense, there's a little bit of substance there, but yet the, the verse 15 and 16 is kind of, especially verse 15, is kind of something that I, it grabbed to me. But I was kind of seeing what you thought. Well, I think the pa- uh, the preparation of the Passover is very important. Just mm-hmm. mostly for, for the fact, and it mentions the sixth hour. Correct me if I'm wrong. That is noon. Noon, and also it's this is this is a little controversial too is that i think matthew or luke actually says the third hour and so that's more of like uh before noon so it's like so which which one is it is it noon or is it nine o'clock within a three hour yeah it's not that big of a difference but yet it's a difference enough for people to be like so it's not real this didn't actually happen but it potato potato it was midday to early day yeah, mid early day. But here's the, here's the thing that grabs my attention with that though. Anyway, is the day more or less than the specific time preparation of the Passover. Jesus doesn't die today. Mm-hmm. Jesus is preparing to die, and just like all the lambs that are being prepared to be slaughtered, you know, it's, he is being prepared just like they are. And but this time it's going to be the last time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just great. I guess symbolization, or I don't know, or whatever the proper terminology is you know i don't know big words but it's pretty cool that I, mean, I i totally agree i think it's pretty cool how it's on the passover of like from exodus of the jewish people being rescued 
from captivity is the same thing of humanity being rescued from captivity of sin that what Jesus is doing here is on the same dagum day of the Passover. Yeah, but just like it's mentioned in all the prophecies and everything else, like he is the lamb being prepared to be slaughtered yeah. for the Passover. Yeah. The final lamb in the last yes, time that the, sacrificing the has been done. Yeah. Um, what did you all think about verse 15? I kind of I, I saw this and thought that was, this was kind of interesting. Verse 15, it says, But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. I saw this interesting, too, is that this is reminiscent to 1 Samuel chapter 8, where God has set up this kingdom within Jeru- of Israel, and like, I want to be your king. Let me rule you. But then the Israelites are like, uh... Give us a king like the nations. We don't want a king that you that like you, basically. That's when they chose Saul. Yeah, it's yeah. like we don't want a king. But guess what? Is that God had grace upon them and gave him Saul, even though they failed and and, and uh, David failed too. But yet, they basically saying the same thing. We don't want God as our king, and they're saying the same thing here. We don't want him as our king. He's not our king. Caesar's our king. And I think that sometimes, this may be a little dicey, that sometimes we as Christians or quote-unquote, the church can say stuff like this. We want America as our king. We want Joel Olstein to be our king. We want uh, Donald Trump to be our king. Or, oh, he or, said it! He said it! I'm just saying, anybody and anybody that is not Jesus, sometimes we can get in trouble by saying, or, hey, let's say this, someone that's not famous, let's say that's, that Mason becomes a pastor of a church and the congregants worship him to the extent of, like, Jesus is only secondary. Mason is the guy. So we need to be very careful that Jesus is our king, not anything or anyone else. But I mean, I know other evangelists, well, I guess now pastors, without calling any names. I mean, I know some that are, that are treated like that. Yes. Yeah. Our, and, our, our, and I mean, it happens everywhere. Yeah. And so I think this is one, a, not a warning to us, but yet we can kind of, we can place ourselves in each individual shoes, even those that are within the crowd. Oh, well, that's exactly what was preached at our revival, wasn't it? People will build great churches, you know, church planners, pastors, you know, whatever you want to call them, will come in and build great churches. And, and, you know, we will have, and he even mentioned one very specifically here in Tennessee that was a great church, even started a college that was a pretty nice college for around here. And then he stepped down from pastor or died off or something like that. But either way, he was no longer the like the leader. And to this day, not even, I think probably 15 or 20 years ago, the college is no more. The church is no more. Everything that he built up is no more because people were flocking to him instead of his purpose. Kind of like if you look at early, earlier in John with John the Baptist, people were flocking to John the Baptist instead of yeah. what John the Baptist was here for. And Jesus is basically saying, my, my kingdom is not of this world. And I think this is where that Jesus is saying to Pilate, it's like, you know, you have no power over this. Like, it's not what you expected into that upside down kingdom it's something completely different yeah. and jesus is something completely different than what we expect him to be and yeah. that and even with jesus being the son of god and if there was anyone that you would want to uh, basically go to war for you'd imagine it'd be jesus right mm-hmm. well when peter did that what happened jesus is like hey buddy put put down your sword that's that's not what we're going to do like jesus is always calling for this uh countercultural behavior from his followers. So, I mean, especially if you have picked an idol that is not God, check yourself. But even when you are following God, check yourself. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. I'm going to read verses uh, 17 through 22 real quick, and then uh, I'm going to 
uh, I'd like to bring some stuff up. So verse 17, it makes mention that carrying his own cross, in which this this cross is not the full you know cross. This is more of like the the beam that his arms went across. So he went out of the place of the skull, which is Aramaic or Hebrew. Hold up, crap. Hold up. Wait, what? I've never heard that before. He didn't carry the whole cross. No, it's, mm-hmm. it wasn't the whole thing. The probably what happened, the way that tradition is said, is that like the 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 horizontal, the vertical beam was already placed or was being placed at the location, and he carried the horizontal beam. Uh, to from the the court or wherever he was judged to the location of execution. I wasn't expecting to have this many dadgummit I'm stupid moments in this episode, but man, no. I've never heard that before. No, so he only carried part of the cross, but yeah, full weight of the world. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, so he took it to the place of the skull, Aramaic called Golgotha. Uh, there, they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write King of the Jews, but this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. So the reason behind Roman custom of carrying a cross is to basically from like the from the, the judgment seat to the lo- location of the of the crucifixion or execution, the reason why they did this was to draw more attention to that criminal or to the crime or to the death, basically get more spectators. Ba- well, to, and it also weakened them so they wouldn't survive as long. True. Because they're having to bear that weight for that. I mean, I don't know how long it was, but I don't imagine it wasn't just a short walk. I think it was a, at least a couple miles, wasn't it? See, I, I walked the Della Rosa. I can't, I can't remember. It, I mean, I, I, I couldn't carry across. I mean, I'm sorry, but after being beaten and like uh, we may mention before, that scourging was either to quicken the death uh, or to do all these other things, bring a confession, punishment, or whatever. But yet this had to be a grudging walk. Let me bring this up because I think this is – let me get y'all's opinions on this. So we know that cru- the crucifixion is a very horrendous act, right? I mean, it's, is it? it's, it's, come on, but it, like, how come we don't see pictures in like in detail, grotesqueness, and it's not really mentioned here in scripture of like a very bloody death. It's not like represented or detailed in the crucifixion. Why do you think there's, do you think there's reasons why Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John didn't go into detail of like what Jesus looked like? Was he, he had like ribs exposed he had these many lashes he was bloody all this it wasn't very grotesque it wasn't like a a gory horror film like why do you think that it was kind of like very subtle in their presentation of jesus representation upon the cross i don't that's it's not relevant i mean especially let's look at the book of john how Mm -hmm. its goal is to reveal that jesus is the the son of god that doesn't contribute like we because for one, if you go and describe like the specific injuries that he's taken on, there's going to be tons of psychos out there that are going to think that like taking on that exact same punishment is necessary yeah. to become Christ-like. That you're going you're yeah, to have sure. people um, idolize the injuries themselves. Um, I mean, I think just Scripture is very carefully thought out in a way that if that didn't make it into any of the Gospels, it's because it wasn't necessary to accomplish Agreed. what Jesus wanted to accomplish. Yeah, because I mean, he, they're, the, these writers are writing to what, first century, second century Jews— 
or Greeks and Gentiles, anybody, they know what the daggum crucifixion is. They don't need in detail information of what the crucifixion is. He know, they know what it like, what it's like. And I think another reason why they use this type of language is that so they don't have to manipulate the motions of people, that they basically lay out the facts and what they've heard and what they've stated and allow the reader to simply read the story instead of being wrapped up into like the, the emotional aspect of the death. Because, I mean, that's what, to be honest, if, if you watch The Passion of Christ, it's very nitty-gritty. And it can draw some emotions. It will. And I think here they somewhat remove the emotional aspect and look at a factual presentation of King of, of King Jesus and his death and the, and the death of sin and the death of death, if you want to say that. Yeah, I mean the, that physical death and what the what the death um, symbolizes, mm-hmm. like what you're supposed to be seeing past all the, the these theoretical blood and guts. And I thought it was pretty cool how that Pilate's public description of Jesus upon that head head of uh, that head thing is the way a tradition how they they've done it. They would be like basically white plaster upon it, and then they would get red and painted. So it would be just like a blank contrast, so people could know. And and Pilate wrote it in Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, and Latin, so that everyone in the vicinity would know what it said. And it said. They tried. He tried to make it as clear as possible. Even his death was identified as identified as humble and obscure as a Nazarene. So Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and even his death recognized that he was from Nazareth of humble uh, beginnings, and, and even his death recognized him as King. But what do you think about the Jewish people basically not getting the last word in, saying, "Well, no, 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 change, change it." It says that he said it. But then Pilate is like, what I've, what I've written is written. I'm not changing it. To me, that sounds like it's good enough for government work. <laughs> you know, I'm not changing it. But, it, but still, it's just like, if, it, if he did change it, it'd be kind of weird. Well, I think it goes back along with uh, Pilate washing his hands of it. True. Like, giving, it's not... He was giving Jesus legitimacy with with that, like let's be honest. Unknowingly, like that, that, yeah, yeah. But he wasn't exactly like you say. He's not doing it on purpose. It's more of a just to make it absolutely clear that he he this isn't his. Well, I was gonna say cross to bear, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's not very fitting given the context. But Pilate again, he he's washing his hands of it and he's making it clear this this is on the these. Jews that demanded his death. Mm-hmm. I'm just doing this to keep them sated, but I don't know. That that might have been Pilate trying to get in uh, a sneaky shot at the Jewish leaders. I mean, Could might be. have been some passive aggressiveness on his part. Because I mean, you did have Pilate be like, "I said what I said. I, I put what I put there. Deal with it." <laughs> so I mean, there are plenty of ways you could read into that. But at the end of the day, Pilate's not the focus here. So I don't know. Who knows? He did maybe. <laughs> So in verses 23 and 24, there's a prophecy being fulfilled here. Really really short. There's, I don't think there's really any kind of theologically deep things, but yet 30, uh, 30, 23 and 24, uh, the garments are being split, being divided amongst uh, the soldiers. And so uh, this fulfills a prophecy which is made in Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. It says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so this you know purple garment, this outer, outer coat that Jesus had, his clothes, which to be honest, if they're covered in blood, I mean... I'd, 
not sure if I would want them, but I mean, I guess I can wash it. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they're not them, picky. They're wanting to get those uh, eBay spots. Yeah. But I, when I, when I thought about this prophecy being fulfilled of like dividing of garments and Jesus, who was obviously stripped naked, I automatically was drawn to Job. In Job chapter 1, when he lost everything and he was completely vulnerable and humiliated, just like Jesus is here, and he's taken the sin of the world, is that what does Job say? That he strips naked and says, Naked I came into my, from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the Lord uh, be praised. And I was like, and, you know, I wonder if Jesus, you know, he's a scholarly guy. He knows what Scripture says, that he probably was thinking, Job was faithful to the end, I'm going to be faithful as well. And I'm, it doesn't say it, but I could see that all these things through scripture. He's like a naked I came to this world, naked I'm gonna go out and I'm going to I'm gonna praise the Lord no matter what. Is that just me or do you kinda of see that parallel no, too? I see that. And one detail that I want to point out, um, I like in the the last little bit of verse twenty three when they wanted to take his garments, it says, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Look at look at Jesus over here following Levitical law with his with his fabrics, <laughs> oh, that that's just something that pops out to me because that's one of those Levitical laws that people talk about all the time. Like you, you can't have garments made from uh, more than one fabric. And well, hey, well, he Jesus. didn't get his garments from like thrift stores. You know, he he went to the the top tier. Of Jesus might be fulfilling the law, but he's also going to follow it. <laughs> I'll cap off the rest of this uh, verses twenty five through twenty seven. We'll end our discussion today. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, ha ha, I wonder who that is, the beloved disciple. <sighs> Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John over here making it clear, making it clear, yeah. like the... The beloved, the one he loved. I, I love that. That's <laughs> Now, it's interesting, though, that John is the only one, well, beloved. We can, we're going to chalk that up to John because that's what it, it, we can put two and two together. But correct me if I'm wrong, but John is the only one, only disciple at the cross. Correct? Am I, am I wrong? Uh, I believe it's recorded in Luke that James is there as well. Probably because it's his brother. So you're probably right. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't remember because I didn't look that up. But... I, I, but there's not many people there. A lot of people have ditched out. Here Jesus looks at Mary and says, Behold your son. And when I first read that, I thought he was referring to himself. They're like, Behold your son. But now I'm thinking, Wait a minute, he's referring to John. And he's telling John to take care of your mother, which he's referring to Mary. So the thing is, though, how devastating, just think about, put your shoes, put yourself in the shoes of Mary. How devastating is that that you, I, that, you're told you're going to bear the Savior of the world, and you basically train this kid up, and he is the Son of God, and you see the things that he's done. It's like, yes, I'm so proud of him. And, you know, we saw in the very first part when we started this study is like, hey, Jesus, turn water into wine. We need more We need more party stuff. But here, it's like almost like a devastating end to like, crap, I th what's going on? So my question is, do you think that Mary understood what was going on on the cross, or do you think she was kind of like, in a state of hopelessness like the disciples and had a chance to run if she wanted to, but yet she was a good mother and stayed. Not saying that she wasn't devastated because her son is dying and about to die and tortured and looks grotesque upon that cross, because, I mean, who wouldn't be? Because Jesus cried himself. But do you think that she understood what all the implications of what was going on at that time? I don't. I think she was just as confused. 
as the disciples were? I mean, on one hand, I would like to say that Mary would have some understanding, given that she had considerably more time with Jesus than you know, the disciples did. But, I mean, given the track record of the disciples to not know what's going on, I would say, not necessarily out of ignorance, but just overwhelming heartbreak of, I mean, that's her son up there. I mean, that's that's got to that's gotta break you down, 100%. But... I mean, scripture just doesn't go into detail mm-hmm. of what her reaction is. I mean, there, I mean, there's nothing really to go on there. And I mean, that goes back to, I mean, for, for better or for worse, it's just that information isn't relevant. I guess. Yeah, it's it's not relevant, and I. I, I mean, think, it's fun to think about. Yeah, uh, I don't think. Yeah, I agree with Mason. I don't think she knew all that was going on, and I and I agree with you is that I think there's too much emotion and heartbreak that's going on that she can't really think upon what is to come. And yeah. I'm, I mean. Uh, because how many times have like emotions and a distressed heart has overcome logic? Yeah, and come to think of it, like I doubt, and I mean again, we have no uh, scriptural record of this, so I can't say for sure. But I would imagine that Jesus wasn't giving Mary a heads up throughout his childhood and be like, "Hey, guess what? I'm going to die in X amount of years," like he did uh, with the disciples. So I guess in theory, she had even less heads up than the disciples did. Mm-hmm. Now, I say that, of course, keep in mind that there were prophecies in existence already that would, like, make it clear that if Jesus is the Son of God, then, yeah, he's he's going to be a sacrifice. But still, like, technically speaking, Mary would have had less heads up from Jesus himself. Okay, I found where James was mentioned. In Matthew 27, it's mentioned, uh, like, the women who were there or whatever that followed him to the grave. Um, Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James. Okay, so it is making James, but just not... James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Gotcha. So not James wasn't there, but it just makes mention that... It, it mentioned, yeah. Gotcha. That's where I was confused at. I was like, I know he had to be there somewhere. Yeah, I just had to scroll down. Yeah. So I also want to point out how reliable are the women. <laughs> I mean, all the men basically ditch, except the women. What do you mean by that question? <laughs> I'm just saying it's like we don't give the women enough credit because okay, all right, the, yeah. The way you were that I was like, man, he cannot. Oh, yeah, oh, okay, wait, 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 wait. Winches just sitting there at the cross. No, 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 no. But I think it's I think it's amazing how many times do you see scripture give like thumbs up to women being yeah. functional and approved by the Son of God that they're, they're seems like they're faithful here to the very end of the cross. They adored Christ. And then they're the ones that are going to the grave. They're, they're the first ones that saw Jesus. Spoiler alert. And so it's just like you see them so intertwined an important aspect of the gospel and the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus himself. They're very important. Well, I mean, God did make it clear that even though all the other stuff he made was good, one thing isn't good for man to be alone. Like, women are incredibly important. Like, they serve a function just as well as uh, men do, and Jesus made it clear throughout his ministry that they needed to be given more credit than they were mm-hmm. uh, being given in their culture. And I mean, that still holds true today. Like, um, I mean, again, Jesus always was going out of his way to to give credence to to those that were seen as lesser by society, uh, whether that be people of other ethnicities, uh, people of quote unquote lesser socioeconomic backgrounds, and then 
people of a gender that was looked down upon at the time. Well, that's one reason why I think that this kind of gives a little bit more evidence towards Scripture, because if this is written in, if written for first century eyes, basically a perspective, then the witnesses of a woman was undervalued or not even used, but yet here, they're first eyewitnesses to everything, it seems like, of the death and the resurrection. And to me, it shows further proof. It's like, if it's first century, and this is written by imagination of somebody, then they would not dare use a woman as an eyewitness of this event. Which, I mean, that goes back to the the upside-down kingdom Mm -hmm. concept. Like, Jesus, just a servant, uh, being crucified, being witnessed by a couple women. Like, at the time, like, that that seems about as ridiculous as you can get. Yep. I mean, honestly, like, even with hindsight looking at Scripture, like, we can still acknowledge that. But but that's uh, the first half of John chapter 19. Next week we'll tackle the rest of it. And, again, just take it real slow and make sure that we uh, appreciate this horrific story that we're able to find so much hope from. But, as always, you can find our uh, social media links, our email. You can get in touch with us, join discussions. We've been having some uh, polls up on the the, the Facebook page that have been garnering some, some good discussions, so you can feel free to join on that. But uh, until then, Tammy, give us those magic words. Peace out.